0: Hello there and welcome to another Coffee and Concepts. Uh, What I'm doing now, as you probably know, is creating a a video in advance of our discussion on the subject uh, so that you can watch this and we can delve right into a conversation uh, at the beginning of the Zoom call. And each Coffee and Concepts is based on something from the previous paro Seminar. So what I want to do for this Coffee and Concepts is explore grace. And so I want to start by looking at the term ideology and going over that again very quickly. Because there was a question that was asked of me on Instagram. uh, Somebody was asking about what I thought about the ideology of Freud. And I mentioned that I was very into Freud, but that I read him primarily as a type of anti-ideological figure and the person was kind of asking about what the difference is between ideology and worldview, because I think that um, for many people, the term ideology just really means the system of thought that you have. And I want to kind of give a much more precise definition here of ideology. Now, there's a great video by Todd McGowan uh, that's on his uh, YouTube channel, and I'll link to it uh, in the Patreon uh, box. And also you'll be able to find it easily if you type in Todd McGowan ideology in YouTube. And it's just a 15, 20 minute video, but it really covers the history of ideology from its first usage right up to the present day. Uh, But I'm not going to cover then what he says, but I'm going to look at the development of three elements of ideology that have kind of grown over the years. And Then that will allow me to talk about self-help and grace. So very quickly, we can talk about maybe uh, three epochs. We can talk about the epoch of slavery. We'll talk about the epoch of feudalism. And we can talk about the epoch of capitalism. Now, that's not the only epochs, but that's relevant to this conversation. Because you can, in many ways, see a type of proto-ideology in uh, a world of slavery which is a world in which uh, physical violence and the threat of physical violence is used to keep people in line. So if you go back far enough, you find this all over the world, the kind of might is right doctrine. Uh, There's very little of what we would today call ideology. Uh, What there was, was as I say, the use of violence and the threat of violence to make people work. There was a very strong sense in which you were alienated, But if you were the oppressed, there was very little you could do because the oppressors had the weapons, they had the force. Uh, I say this is a type of proto-ideology because there's not much in the way of thinking behind this. Uh, There is a little bit, as I mentioned there, the might is right idea. Uh, which I'm sure the oppressors had that they were rightfully the ones in control and in power Uh, that would not have been shared by those who were oppressed Uh, and that's very brutal and very basic form of oppressor and oppressed now the response to that of course is to galvanize resistance Uh, there's always more of the oppressed than the oppressor often the oppressor begins to get lazy all of the skills are the level of the oppressed because the oppressed are the people who are having to do everything and what generally happens is you get a stronger and stronger and more skilled oppressed class and eventually they're able to rise up and revolt and they also revolt because there's not much to lose Right? There's no sense in which they're doing this, but hey, in a few years, maybe they could be the oppressors or they could rise up the, the levels. You know, this is a very strict caste system. So if you're an oppressed person in the age of slavery, there is no social mobility. There is just a life and a short life of toil. So again, there is a lot of motivation to revolt. So then let's move on to kind of feudalism. Now, in feudalism, it is not just physical violence and the threat of physical violence that keeps people in place. Also, the educational system and the religious system are brought into play to tell people that the way that the economy is structured is the way it should be structured. It is the divine plan. It is the arrangement of nature. Now, again, if you... Disobey that, violence will be used, but the violence starts to get more and more hidden, and this idea of the way things ought to be and having your place within society uh, grows. Uh, we see an example of this in the famous hymn All Things Bright and Beautiful there's a chorus uh, or a verse in that that says the rich man in his castle the poor man at his gate God made them high and lowly and ordered their estate and now that uh, was taken out of the hymn I don't think it's sung anymore but you can see how that's kind of ideology at its most raw you are singing how God wants the rich in their castles and the poor at the gates. That is that is God's will now This helps us see what is already in an embryonic form in the might is right uh, ideology, which is the notion that the contingent social and economic conditions of reality are necessary. They are the divine will. They are the way things should be. So that's kind of 101 ideology and that's how Marx and Engels used it they were the first to kind of theorize it in a in a technical way and they drew out how ideology takes the contingent reality that we are in and says that is the way it ought to be that is the way it is supposed to be and also and this is evidenced within feudalism this is the second, that I want to add now which was kind of not in the slavery model but you see in feudalism and that is an answer to the alienation so in feudalism you might be castrated you might not be able to ever be a lord or a lady ever be royalty you have to toil in a small village all of your life but in heaven you will find peace and wealth and fullness and blessedness. So there is still the alienation, but there is also now a promise that it will one day be overcome, not in this life, but in the next life. So this is much more effective as an ideology because if in slavery it is just pure might that keeps people oppressed, then there isn't much of a... Uh, incentive not to rebel, right? As I say, you've got nothing much to lose and a lot to gain. But in feudalism, a couple of elements are now added to keep you in place. One is, this is God's desire. This is the natural order. And then secondly, if you obey, you will get rid of your alienation in the next life and you will have everything you could possibly want. So this is slightly more difficult to free yourself from. I mentioned, you know, how in slavery, the revolt is a violent one where people say I've got nothing to lose. What happens in feudalism is the ideological critique there is just showing that things like heaven and the natural order are types of weapon that are used to keep you passive and to keep you obedient. So in the feudal kind of age or in that kind of age, the the people who are the revolutionaries will try to show how these images of everything's going to be brilliant in the future if you're just obedient now are, are tools of oppression. So heaven doesn't, doesn't mean it's a lie, but when it is used to keep people passive, when it is not used as a revolutionary tool, and it can be, that's not the topic of this conversation, but I think the... Uh, Religion has, or I know it has at times, been used in a kind of revolutionary way, but often the notion of heaven is used precisely to keep you in place. So a really good example of ideology critique in relation to that is actually, well, this is a modern figure, but Joe Hill, who was a union organiser, a very revolutionary figure who was executed uh, in, I think, 1915. And he wrote a very famous song called The Preacher and the Slave. And this was a parody of a hymn that was written by Sanford Fillmore Bennett, I think, uh, who suffered from depression. And he came up with this song uh, that lifted him from that depression. And so the lyrics go, There is a land that is fairer than day, And by faith we can see it afar. For the Father waits over the way, to prepare us a dwelling place there in the sweet by and by we shall meet on that beautiful shore in the sweet by and by we shall meet on that beautiful shore we shall sing on that beautiful shore the melodious songs of the blessed and our spirit shall sorrow no more not a sign for the blessing of rest And it goes on like that. And so this song was sung to the miners as they came back from these horrific shifts in the mines. And they would listen to this and they would think of the heavenly realm that they would one day dwell in. So what Joe Hill did is by writing a parody of this, he basically exposed the way that heaven was being used to keep them oppressed. So what I'm going to do now is let you listen to that song. It was hard for me to find a good rendition of it when I was looking for it for my Atheism for Lent course. So a good friend of mine, Heather Lynn, came round to my house one day and recorded it. So she's going to sing the song, and you'll hear within it that revolutionary spirit that is basically exposing the truth, exposing how this image of heaven is being used in a reactionary way to prevent earthly emancipation.
1: Creatures come out every night try to tell you what's wrong and what's right, but when asked how about something to eat they will answer in voices so sweet you will eat. I okay. can When the world and its wealth we have gained To the grafters will sing this refrain
0: Okay, so I hope you saw in that song the way in which Joe Hill tried to expose how the idea of heaven, the idea of a place of no more alienation in the next life was actually uh, an oppressive and a reactionary idea and doing so in order to rob ideology of its power. So that was the whole point of ideology critique at that second level, is to rob ideology of its power by exposing its false promises. Now I'll just move on into kind of the contemporary epoch, where we can say that heaven has come to earth. What we have in the modern world is the idea that you can overcome alienation, Not really in the next life, that story is less and less persuasive to more and more people. Even very religious people aren't really persuaded by that. They might believe it, but they're much more drawn to getting rid of their alienation through commodity satisfaction, right? Or psychedelic enlightenment or sexual liberation. We are surrounded, as I've talked about, in other seminars, the idea of the uncastrated other, the fantasy that there are others around us who are enjoying in an unrestrained way, who, who have gotten rid of their alienation, which of course generates jealousies and envies. It's part of what generates social fragmentation. In a society where you're all equally screwed, there is a certain solidarity that's also a problem within slavery systems, is it creates a profound solidarity among the outsiders, among the nobodies and the nothings. They identify together as the nothings. And so therefore, with that social solidarity, they can become a class that can you know, fight. But in contemporary society, there is deep fragmentation within the social order. Um, Uh, Lots of different identity groups and uh, not really much unification. And we are surrounded, as I I say, by people who seem to have the thing that we would want. In fact, I'm just talking to you. uh, And outside, there is a $25 million super yacht just moored uh, in the water. (laughs) Um, And last week, there was a $35 million super yacht that was moored there. Very rare in Northern Ireland to have that. Um, in, and actually the same week there was a 350 million dollar super yacht moored in a place called Bel- uh, banger just about 20 miles away uh, it was the heiress of Walmart owned that one so we had the 25 million which now doesn't seem that impressive we had the 35 million no it wasn't 35 million it was 65 million because <laughs> the whole building the three buildings that are part of this complex of the apartment I live in that all cost I think, $60 to make. So the entire place that I live in, that yacht that was moored for a week uh, was there, you know, and it was um, very conspicuous. And so you look at this, and I'm looking out there at this $25 million yacht right now as I talk to you. It's very beautiful. Um, And it can make you go, there's a person without alienation, because that is a person who is experiencing less of the traumas of life than somebody who's having to work two jobs and can't pay their rent. Pascal, if you did the Pascal course recently, uh, you'll have read The Fragment, where he, he beautifully articulates how he, he says, well, all of us have a sense of alienation. He calls it misery. Um, I talked about jouissance. But this, this sense of a lack. But he said that the rich, they have it as well. But he said it's like a wheel, if you imagine a wheel spinning really fast, the richer on the inside of the wheel and the poor are on the outside. So the poor feel the centrifugal forces in this very dramatic way, and the wealthy can protect themselves from those centrifugal forces. But they're still part of the same reality, the same trauma that is being a subject. Uh, but they are protected from it. And also Pascal famously talks about how the rich kind of almost like the king who has a jester. They have more money so they can spend more time on what he calls divertisements, ways of attempting to avoid the alienation. You can't get rid of it, but you can uh, through the hunt and through money and through having a massive yacht. You can kind of escape it to some extent for a little bit of time, (laughs) but it always comes back. Uh, I think Freud famously said about the joys of money, he says, you know, my and I think he even talked about a boat. So I'll, I'll, this is a paraphrase, but he says, you know, there's something really nice about owning a beautiful boat. But he says, but it's not really any better than the joy of being too warm in bed and putting your foot out and feeling the cool breeze, right? You're like, oh, yeah, there's like certain joys that are just as, um, if not more satisfying, that don't cost anything. My The thing that I love more than anything is to read, and reading is basically free, Um And it's, uh, yeah, I'd pick it over pretty much anything. Anyway, I'm I'm going off on a tangent. Um, What I'm saying here is, oh, yes, the heavenly dimension of ideology which promises you get rid of your alienation in the next life is now firmly rooted in this life. But we all can't seem to get it, right? Now, this adds a third dimension to ideology. And this is... What I talked about in the last seminar, namely surplus value, or sorry, surplus enjoyment, surplus enjoyment. Uh, what you have not in ideology so far as you have it renders necessary contingent social and economic relations. I'm um, on that very briefly. Uh, one of the critiques that Marx had of Feuerbach is Feuerbach said that uh, our idea of God as a projection of ourselves, a projection of our own values, what it is to be human and therefore when you look at God you see the possibilities of of you know what we can do not as an individual but as a community. What we put into the bank of God we need to withdraw back and embrace those things ourselves. So in other words to come to know ourselves we first need a mirror so we project out and then we need to bring back the essence that we see in the other. And Marx famously took on a lot of what Feuerbach said. Feuerbach's a really interesting thinker, but said that God isn't so much the eternal essence of what it is to be human. God is the encyclopedia of the current conditions rendered spiritual. So in other words, when you look at religion and God he says you can often tell the contingent social and economic relations but they're rendered into some sort of eternal truth and so it basically covers over the truth that things can be different that we can think of society in different ways that society has been different at different times and will be in the future if you take just for example relationships marriage uh, we often think that Uh, especially maybe in a conservative setting that, oh, well, we always did it this way, right? It was always a kind of nuclear family and there's lots to say uh, for that. But it also covers over the fact that that's actually quite a new thing. There's lots of relationship configurations that were, were in the past and what we think of as just eternal the way it always was actually has a history, right? So ideology covers over the historical and the contingent, making it eternal. It's the first thing. The second thing is it offers, you know, when it gets into its mature form, it offers a way of overcoming the alienation, which means making the lack that is inherent to us. Again, I talked about that in a seminar the other day, that lack is an inherent antagonism within us that generates struggle and dissatisfaction, but it is also where we get satisfaction and meaning and where love arises so this antagonism is the source of both pleasure and pain and therefore it's jouissance which means pleasurable suffering right so ideology secondly gives a way of rendering that inherent lack into a loss that can be overcome in heaven or on earth And then the third element that we're seeing today, and this isn't the only element, like ideology is always becoming more sophisticated and it's a really interesting topic. I'm just kind of mentioning three important elements. The third element is that ideology in the contemporary era promises to get rid of your alienation while encouraging it, while maintaining it, and and maintaining your enjoyment of the alienation in a disavowed way but in this third element which comes to surplus enjoyment we see as I said in contemporary society the idea that heaven is there just over the horizon if you earn enough money become an entrepreneur of the self meditate in the right way take the right drugs whatever it is you will find the wholeness and the oneness you will get over alienation And so how does ideology function in this environment? If it is true that alienation is an inherent part of being human, which means that there is a certain type of desire within us that seeks desire itself, right? So we have desires that we want fulfilled. But in addition to those desires, desire for tea or coffee or to see friends, we also have a desire for desire itself. And the name for that is drive. And if we have a drive, then there is no way to overcome alienation, right? And that means that if you're promised a way to overcome alienation, the closer you get to that, the more, and the more your drive is diminished, the more traumatizing that can be. Now, this isn't for every structure, but let's just say for a typical neurotic Uh, this is kind of an experience that can happen is when you actually get the money or the fame or the person that you always wanted this uh, pleasure is uh, overwrought with actually a kind of despair and a kind of failure so what we do unconsciously Right? Because consciously we want to fulfill our desire, consciously we want to get rid of alienation. This is why ideology works, because consciously we want to render lack into loss. We want an answer to this feeling of an abyss within us. But at an unconscious level, we don't want to get rid of that. Because that's the source of all of our meaning and our desire and the things that make life truly pleasurable beyond some animalistic enjoyment. So in a way, unconsciously, we always want to sabotage ourselves. So what ideology has to do is offer us a promise of something that will get rid of the alienation while failing to work. So ideology here works precisely because it doesn't. It allows you to keep a fantasy alive of wholeness and oneness and completeness if only you get a certain thing. And what fantasy is, is the covering over of the lack, right? Fantasy covers over the lack and renders it into loss, tells you uh, in an imaginary way how you can have what you truly desire, while at the same time not giving you that, allowing you to enjoy your dissatisfaction. Now, the issue is for most of us, uh, you know, that... Alienation that we experience in the world is terrible. I mean, for people, as I say, who don't have enough money to pay their rent, this alienation can be devastating. But there is something about alienation itself that is part of what it means to be human. So, ideology gives you the promise of how to get over it while also keeping you always at a distance so in contemporary society we're always looking at the next car the next iphone the next thing that will satisfy and the precise reason why we're caught up in this frenetic pursuit is because the next object doesn't actually work if it worked uh, the ideology would crumble so now we've got the three elements of ideology in contemporary way we've got the rendering of the contingent into the eternal the justification of it we've got A promise of how we can get over alienation and we have a boundary, an obstacle that prevents us from getting it. So ideology turns lack into loss, promises how to get rid of the loss, but always subverts your ability to get that. Now, how does that affect how we understand self-help and grace? In the seminar, I talked about self-help as all as being inherently ideological in its industrial complex way, right? There's a form of self-help that works, but it has to be grounded in grace, right? So a self-help that is not grounded in grace is one that tries to get you from A to B. It says, this is what you desire, here's how you get it. But by doing that, it doesn't acknowledge that actually there's some unconscious dimension of us that doesn't want to get from A to B so we can do as much self-help as we want but we'll find ourselves self-sabotaging not getting there or if we do get there something even worse will happen and we'll realize that we're no happier than we were before so in contrast to that in grace you don't have to do anything you don't have to go from A to B right in grace you don't have to do anything you experience a radical acceptance as paul Tillich said you accept that you're accepted you may be accepted in a circle like aa but you can't accept that acceptance and you stay silent but maybe after going there for a month you finally feel the acceptance you allow it to come into you and as you accept that you're accepted you're able to speak you're able to be honest, you're able to say your name and to say that you're an alcoholic in a group of people who accept you just the way you are and don't ask you to change. So in that way, what happens is in grace, you confront yourself because that's what's happening whenever in AA you're able to finally admit that you're an alcoholic. That's kind of the story you've been hiding from yourself, you've been denying to yourself, but now you're able to admit that Which means that you're confronted with your surplus enjoyment. You're confronted with yourself. Now, in the video, I talked about this notion of surplus enjoyment, which is a type of enjoyment you get in a disavowed way from not achieving your goal. That's why, again, self-help doesn't work because it, it says, oh, you want to get to be... Whenever it doesn't realise that the enjoyment you're getting is the movement itself, not the actual getting to point B. So when you're confronted with your uh, what you're getting out of your alienation, and in this example of Alcoholics Anonymous, what are you getting out of your alcoholism? What is it covering over? What uh, what is it the solution to? No longer seeing it as the problem to which you're trying to find a solution but to seeing it as a solution to a problem a solution that is itself more damaging now than the thing that is trying to protect you from so once you see what it is giving you that allows you to actually start changing to actually do the 12 steps right so the 12 steps could be seen as self-help if they weren't Immersed in grace. So step zero is the experience of grace. And then you can begin to change. In the seminar, I used the example of my friend who was always being told off by his wife, always felt guilty, always felt that he was in the wrong until he realized in a conversation we had that he loves winning people over in work and in love. And his wife loves being won over. And actually what they were doing was they were enjoying this thing where she would say, oh, listen, you've done something wrong. And he would try and win her over. There was actually, this was an unhealthy way of actually expressing a healthy dynamic. And as soon as he saw that, it, it, immediately what was a burden became a joy. And he left there to go back to his wife. Um, to kind of win her over, realizing that not they had to change their symptom, but rather he had to realize the enjoyment that was disavowed within it. That realization itself changed the symptom into something healthier. A friend of mine just recently told me that, uh, she told me a dream about a year ago about spiders. She was terrified, uh, phobia of spiders. And she had a dream about spiders and we interpreted it together. And in the interpretation of the dream, We connected it to some early stuff about her father and we worked it all through what what was actually being hidden within that phobia. What was it offering her? And the funny thing is she texted me just last week and she said, oh, there was a spider sitting on me the other day. Didn't bother me at all. And she said, you know, I can't even remember what we talked about when we talked about that dream. But something I was confronted with in that interpretation just took away the phobia. And I couldn't remember what we'd really talked about either. Neither of us could remember it, but it worked because at the time she was confronted by the surplus enjoyment that was within that phobia and that confrontation was enough to get rid of the symptom entirely. Not like having to put your hand in spiders and and trying to desensitize yourself or anything like that. You find out what the surplus enjoyment is and when that is discovered, that can often be enough to shift things. So just to finish very quickly, grace is revolutionary and emancipatory, unlike the inherently reactionary dimension of self-help, because it allows you to enjoy a certain inherent, eternal alienation that is part of being human, to realize that instead of trying to always posit something that will finish the alienation, what you do is, in Camus' words, you become the rebel. The rebel is the one who enjoys fighting for the good, where the kingdom of God is in the fighting for the kingdom of God. Camus was actually having a subtle dig at his friend Sartre. Uh, They were friends. They fell out. And uh, he would say that basically Sartre was a revolutionary. And he said the problem is, he says, "the the conservatives, they are not happy until they get back to some golden age. And he says the revolutionaries aren't happy until they get to some utopia. And then he said, but the rebel... The rebel is the one who enjoys the struggle itself and who doesn't sacrifice people on the altar of the past or the future, but sees in the action of emancipatory struggle, liberation itself. Because here's the thing, if you think that some goal like say writing a book I had a friend who wanted to write a book a children's book and she talked about it for 10 years but she never did it and it was a short book because as I talked to her it became obvious that writing the book was seen as the way out of a very unhappy environment that she was in and so she didn't really want to complete the book because if she completed the book she would realize that she's in this unhappy terrible situation so the book allowed her to keep the fantasy alive grace allows you to in the words of Lacan traverse the fantasy and to traverse the fantasy is to see the surplus disavowed enjoyment in the fantasy and see how it is holding you in place and what that allows you to do and traversing is a nice way to describe it because you're allowed now to walk once you traverse the fantasy you actually can move forward Because if, for example, you don't think that writing that book is going to make everything perfect, but that actually the enjoyment of writing a book is in the writing of the book. And yes, there will be a pleasure in seeing it finished, but that won't be the most rewarding part. But it's actually the process itself. Once you're able to integrate that insight into you, you're much more likely to write the book, right? Because it's not that you're putting consciously all of this freight on the alienation that's going to dissipate when the book is written and so you're free to kind of do it my um, my supervisor with my phd he said to me peter remember your phd will be the worst thing you ever write and that was very freeing because i realized okay this is the first thing really i'm writing first big thing i'm writing and if i am worried and thinking that this is going to have to be the best thing I've ever done and get everything right, then I will just be frozen. But the fact that I'm going like, no, the enjoyment is in the writing of it, the getting involved in it, the reading, then that allowed me to actually complete the PhD. So interestingly, the very freedom from that ideological uh, kind of like treasure was the very thing that allowed me to be productive. So productivity is precisely in grace when you don't have to do anything, when you just see your surplus enjoyment, when you confront yourself and are able to see what you're getting out of your current situation, you can find a way to be free from that and begin to work towards a better uh, future. Okay, I will stop there and look forward to chatting with you tomorrow. Bye-bye.